Flying Bull Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film. It's good stuff. Yeah. It's the Laugh Podcast. This is Laugh number 85. We have a review for you of uh, Ridley Scott's new movie, The Martian. This will come as quite a shock to my crewmates and to NASA and to the entire world. But I'm still alive. Surprise. Here's the rub. It's going to be four years for another mission to reach me. And I'm in a hat designed to last 31 days. So I got to make water and grow food on a planet where nothing grows. But if I can't figure out a way to make contact with NASA, then none of this matters anyway. We've got an incoming message. Mein Gott. <laughs> Mark Watney's still alive. Woo! In your face, Neil Armstrong. There must be some also uh, an adaptation of the novel by Andy Re- Weir. Andy Weir. Sound like Brett Weir. Is Brett Weir here? During a manned mission, I'm going to read this from IMDb. During a manned mission to Mars, astronaut Mark Watney is presumed dead for a, after a fierce storm left behind by his crew. But Watney has survived. He finds himself stranded and all alone on the hostile planet. With only meager supplies, he must draw upon his ingenuity, wit, and spirit uh, to subsist, to find a way, and find a way to signal Earth that he is still alive. This is based on the best-selling book, as you mentioned, uh, by Andy Weir. Mm-hmm. Was, uh first self-published as a blog, mm-hmm. right? Apparently, he also uh, contacted people with technical questions on the blog to fill in the blanks and things that he didn't know. Yeah, a lot of the technical the stuff's really good. People would uh, email him and say, hey, you, you idiot, you screwed up this bit of science. And he would go back and... Fix it. Yeah, fix it. Uh, screenplay by Drew Goddard. Uh, wrote TV shows like Buffy, Angel... Lost, I think. He was worked on Lost. Maybe a little bit. He also uh, wrote World War Z. He, he's one of the credited Ugh. writers on that. Uh, but, I mean, I like him more. He was the showrunner for Daredevil. Yeah, but wasn't didn't he leave that under some controversial but then I situation? Think, I thought he came back. Um, he also directed uh, The Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, that's probably the best of the movies that I've, that he's been associated with that I like. Um, but yeah, he was doing Daredevil and Sinister Six, or what is it? I believe he is still attached to Sinister Six. Uh, that's being developed by Sony Pictures, but they've recently kind of canned the whole Spider-Man franchise. Well, I thought that they were going to share it, and because Goddard was going to be part of the reboot for that. Well, they were hoping the last movie, Amazing Spider-Man Two, was going to do well, and then they'd do a third Spider-Man with Andrew Garfield playing the title role. And then do Sinister Six as well. Right. Focusing on the villains. When the second movie did not do well, they're allowing Marvel Films now to put Spider-Man in. And I believe he'll be in the March release of Captain America, The Civil War. All right. So, but Goddard's not attached to that anyway? I think Goddard's still trying to develop the Sinister Six movie and sell Sony on it. But I think the price tag somewhere north of $150 million to do that. <laughs> And Sony's just, I mean, they're gun-shy. Well, doing Daredevil, Sinister Six, Six, and The Martian all at the same time is sort of like uh, having to teach four different preps. <laughs> like 12 AP. A little pat on the back there. 10 honors. Splitting film and 11 average all at the same time. No, it's actually trying, it because it's a long-term thing, being attached to three different movies of that nature is sort of like doing three different, uh, I don't know, master's degrees yeah. all at the same time. So, admire him, I guess. Uh, I didn't really like World War Z, but this movie is a lot better. Directed by Ridley Scott. If you go back to Laugh Number 2, is it Laugh 2? The Scott debate. Mm-hmm. Scott versus Scott. The greater Scott. I believe I defended Ridley Scott. You did defend Ridley Scott. So, what's your take on this latest movie by him? I think this is his third best uh, science fiction movie. It's high praise, considering he also directed Alien and Blade Runner. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of directors, you're going, ah, this isn't good. I think this is a fine film. I would say it gets nominated for Best Picture at the end of the year. I don't think it's going to win, but I do think it's a really good film. It's a great adaptation. I'm sure we're going to get into that a whole lot more. I think it's 
got a great cast. It's well acted. Special effects are good. All around, it is a really good film, and it's a film that I think you should go and see in theaters. I do think the big screen helps this film play well. Did you see it in 3D? I did not see it in 3D. My wife and I went to an afternoon showing. Uh, whole audience was into it. Very packed. Probably the most people I've ever seen in a theater up here in Gloucester. I would. It would be safe to say that when I saw it, it was the most people I've seen in a theater in Gloucester, except for maybe Minions. Okay. And I didn't have a problem with a big audience. Normally Ooh. I do. This audience was quiet, attentive, uh, laughed at the right times, oh no God. cell phones coming out. No, nah, I'm going to have a, uh, I'll talk about that later. Okay. I don't yeah. want to get away from your I mean, I, discussion I would say of the film. The audience skewed older. I know my parents are going to go see this film and they see maybe one movie a year in theaters. Why are they going to go see it? Uh, my dad read the book and really enjoyed it. Okay. Um, I also, I read the book back beginning of summer and I was thrilled with it. I've been telling everyone to go read it. I don't think I've heard a negative review come back about it. Yeah, a lot of people are really high on the book. A lot of my mom was reading it. it it's she was great. having her gallbladder surgery. It, it's an adventure story. It, it's about going and exploring. And uh, right now in our classes, we're talking about uh, archetypes and you know these cultural stories, and almost all of them have some sort of adventure story. I think there is something in us as a civilization where we want to go and explore, and we want to go and see things and. Pretty much, we've gone all the places on Earth there are to go. So the idea of this huge story that takes place on Mars over many, many months, I don't want to be more specific than that to get into spoilers, Right. It, it, it's a very long and involved adventure. I, I think that speaks to us, something deep down at our core. So it worked for me. What did it do for you? I think it was a good movie. I, I appreciated it. I enjoyed watching it. I was surprised that it was able to have as big of an impact on me given the fact that I don't generally care <laughs> <laughs> about people or things. And it's hard for me to feel suspense in movies when I know what the eventual outcome is going to be. But this movie, I, I, I found myself being surprised at certain points that I was able to be, feel that tension. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause I, as the, uh, it's a rescue story. Mm -hmm. And as the rescue was approaching, I was thinking to myself, I don't, I don't see the tension here. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to be able to feel tension in this part. It'll be interesting to see how they, if they're able to pull that off. And then I realized as I was watching it, that, that it, the tension paid off for me. It became an, uh, so you were never worried this was going to become the great Waldo Pepper, the Robert Redford movie from the seventies. Yeah. About flying. Yeah, where he's got to go rescue the girl, and they have this wonderful um, stunt I, where he jumps from one biplane to another, I would and goes, and he's just about to grab her, and she falls to her death. Wow, man. Spoilers he, from a 45-year-old yeah. movie? Jeez. A movie I've never seen, because I would say I haven't. I think probably of the, all the movies that were running through my mind, The Great Waldo Pepper was not one of them. Oh, no, it's, so. it's a... Great but, film. It, well, it, yeah, it's great. No, there's no reason for me to see it well, or any of our listeners that haven't seen it. No, you should see it. You should also go um, Adventures in Screenwriting by William Goldman. He talks a okay. lot about that film and its reversal of expectations and how you couldn't make a film like that nowadays. Okay. All right. Fair enough. It's an interesting experiment for those of you that don't mind having your movie spoiled. <laughs> yeah. Well, how many movies do we go to that don't uh at the end, don't have a positive outcome. There are very few movies that end sadly. Right. They don't... Uh, okay. Yeah. I would say that in this movie, that's one of the drawbacks that I find. Okay. I, I wasn't going to come in and, and completely destroy and obliterate this movie because I knew I have a tendency to do that with movies that you're big on. And I knew that you were going to be big on this movie even while I was watching it. I mean, you were preloaded and predisposed to sort of like it i think our the audience is predisposed to like it and that's a testament to the acting and the and the actor choice so one of the questions i have for you is does this movie work with a different actor would it work with ben affleck instead of matt damon? instead of matt damon instead of private ryan <laughs> yeah. um, does the movie work without private ryan saving private ryan yeah there's a meme going template. around the internet going uh how much money has the united states spent to save Matt Damon. Right. Uh, I don't know if Ben Affleck would work. You, you need someone who can joke and be really likable. 
in the book, they especially they, they explain how Mark Watney is the glue that holds this team together. You know, you have your commander, but he's the guy who jokes around, you know, is friendly, keeps everyone talking, keeps things loose. He just has that likable quality. And I mean, that's Matt Damon in a nutshell. So you, I don't know if Ben Affleck can be that jokey, funny guy quite in, in quite the right, right way. All right. Well, the movie did not establish that in the, the movie itself didn't establish that before the events really? that preceded. Yeah. He was joking around with the other guys. It they had to cut I, out his calm. I can tell you. Yeah, but that's a two and a half minute scene. I can tell you that there, there are a lot of drawbacks to the movie not having all the spaces filled in by uh, the book. And that's one of them. Like, um, and I, I can talk about some of the other ones, I think, in spoilers. But in terms of uh, having a great affinity for the actor to begin mm-hmm. with, or for the character, the role of Mark Watney, right on the outset, that's not really there. You get that mm-hmm. over time, but I think they were they were sort of banking on having uh, Matt Damon as that character, and th- then you can f- you can have that backstory with Matt Damon. I don't think you can have that backstory just as a subtext with a Ben Affleck or a Hugh Jackman or someone like that. I just don't think it works. But what have you what have you put Chiwetel Ejiofor in the uh, Matt Damon role? in the Matt Damon role? Kind of switched him up. I don't know. I'm not sure how well Chiwete Ejiofor handles the, the comedy a- aspects. I mean, he can definitely do the drama. Maybe you should run down the actors that are in the movie because uh, this is an ensemble piece. There's uh, uh, the last two movies that we've seen, and then if you count also Sicario, which I saw recently, Black Mass, this one, and uh, The Martian, and uh, Sicario, they're all really strong ensemble pieces they have a lot of yeah. uh, performance key performances by a whole lot, a lot of different actors um this one has matt damon jessica chastain Kristen wig jeff daniels michael michael penna kate mara sean bean sebastian right. stan uh Ch- well, Chiwetel sebastian stan guy is isn't he the one from 50 shades i don't know maybe uh, um donald lover benedict yeah. wong right uh also i i I really liked a performance by Mackenzie Davis, mm-hmm. who had a small small role, and I want to see her in some other stuff now. Yeah, I thought that they were all decent. I thought that they all did a decent job. I don't think the actors I thought did a decent job. I don't. I, I, there were some things I didn't like about the the writing of the characters. And I think your point that Matt Damon's role might be a little underdeveloped. They don't explain stuff. That's par for the course with Matt Damon. I think he often. Uh, is brought in because he has such a likable personality and he is watchable that he allows you to get away with things. Uh, the Born Identity movies, his character in those films is way underdeveloped compared to the books and just, you know, his ability to be a super spy, but he just carries it off with his actions and mannerisms and makes it work in the film. In this film, his character's way underdeveloped and, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to keep going back to, oh, in the book it was this way, but his character is alone for much larger chunks of time in the book. He's out of communication with NASA. Mm-hmm. So he's on his own and he's having a fight for survival. And I really like that the movie works on a small scale, one man trying to survive, you know, a la Castaway or something. The, the movie does that? Yeah. Or the, the, the story does that from the book. Right. You know, and, and the movie has that some. You know, he has to survive on his own, but it's also the world is pulling together all of its resources to save this one man. So it's large and small in scale at the same time. Right. I, I really enjoy that. So um, was that in the book? The Because I know the first sentence of the book and it's a first person narrative. Mm-hmm. This movie goes big and broad by the uh, end of the movie. Again, you read off all of the different people that are involved, but there's multiple uh, events going on in different places at the same time. Um, different people are involved at, in their areas of expertise. So I'm wondering how that was handled in the book. In the book, uh, the first third of it is all just Watney's logs about what's happening and his attempts for survival. Uh, then you go into a third-person narration okay. when you go to NASA. All right. But Watney, all of his stuff is um, these logs. you find that as a cheat? Well, it'd be boring to see him typing his computer all the time. You could have other multiple first-person perspectives. Yeah, I like, thought he did a good job with all those monologues and conveying the emotions and, I mean, working well in a lot of monologues. No, I mean having different characters' points of view as 
interior monologues or something like that. A la uh, well, only As Ma- I Lay Dying or something like that. Yeah, but like only, I said, only Matt Damon's character has the monologues. Right. He's writing the reports. Everyone else is talking to each other. And it is kind of startling in the book when you suddenly jump back to Earth. Um, and like I said, that's held off for uh, for a fair ways. Yeah, in the movie it's m- much more uh, streamlined and interconnected. Yeah, they start the rescue in fact, pretty quick. Some of the things that I thought that I would have enjoyed were uh, the isolation. I like that theme. What does a person do when a person is uh, without hope? Yeah. And how do you how do you persevere in a hopeless world? Uh, in Castaway, those were some of the bigger um, elements to the movie that I enjoyed, but this didn't seem to have as much of that, which is, I guess it's no. a stylistic point. Anyway, it's also a choice. It, the movie has a lot of energy. It's very brisk. It's moving along where in the book, he has to go and find the pathfinder probe so he can get communications with earth. Mm-hmm. I guess it's okay to talk about the first hour or so of this movie. Yeah. I mean, there's only so many yeah. different, I mean, but that's a journey, I guess that takes him, I don't know, it's like two weeks to get there and then to get back. This is and a, he's only driving, I think, for like two hours a day. His battery's then draining. I spend the rest of the time recharging them. Yeah, this so is, he does a ton of just sitting and, you know, just kind of relaxing, reading, writing these reports, watching old 70s shows. Yeah, this doesn't work in, a, in film form. No. That sort of uh, slow burn that would have to take place over... Uh, this period of time that it would take to rescue. The reason that it so, takes so long for a rescue mission to happen is because of the distance Mars is mm-hmm. from Earth. And uh, in the movie, they do a pretty good job of explaining, you know, it takes, uh, well, I think in the movie, they say 12 months to get to Earth if mm-hmm. you, you know, as a rocket. Uh, but I understand that that's not entirely accurate. I think it's only six months, depending on. I don't know, positions of the planets. I'm not going to necessarily try to to destroy this movie on its technical aspects because I didn't know any of them going in. There's a big problem that I have with the movie, and I'll talk about it in spoilers, in terms of how they they try to, to have uh, their cake and eat it too, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that that's a uh, that's kind of trite thing to say, but I think this movie was trying to... I mean, it's smart, but it's also kind of dumb at times. And it's trying to appeal to all audiences. And I don't think you can you can serve two masters. And I, I don't think the movies... I, I think it's it's cheapened as a result of uh, trying to serve two masters. So. Possibly. I, I, I'm very impressed with it, though, as a science fiction film. And for a long time, science fiction films were not held in high esteem. I know, you know, growing up, well into the 90s, science fiction films were the low-hanging fruit of um, the cinema world. But I would say in the last four or five years, really starting with Avatar, I know how much you roll your eyes, but... Dude, that is a crap movie. But It's not even real science fiction. It's fantasy BS cartoon. That's, that's fine, but it's breakthroughs... Are you talking about Avatar in, The Last Airbender? No, but it's breakthroughs in technology and allowing you to tell whatever story you want. Well, that's a different now, thing. So sadly, they chose it, that story. But it has story. opened up a world, and I argued this at the time. It's going right. to open up a world where now oh, we can tell geez. whatever stories we want. And there have been some wonderful science fiction films. Interstellar, you know, is probably the worst of those five that I well, can name. Wait, um, you I named name five? You named one. <laughs> You named but, Avatar. But it's going to be the worst, and I know you're going to roll your eyes. All right, well, wait Interstellar, a bit, Edge of Tomorrow, um, Oblivion, this movie, The Martian, and oh crud, I can't remember the last one. I had it in my head. Wonderful. Oh, X-Mark Gravity. Okay. I mean, these are wonderful films that we really couldn't have done ten years ago, and I do think they hold up. You know, even Interstellar, you know, uh, it's you know, it gets a lot of stuff wrong. It's still a movie, I think, to show people in ten or twenty years. It's impressive in its scale they don't i don't think they get a whole lot of the science wrong in that movie they just get some of the storytellers wrong yeah this movie suffers from some of the same not the same problems it suffers from different problems but in a strange way and you're gonna i think you might call bs on me i kind of like interstellar better (laughs) Jeez. there's no all right i'm not gonna spoil interstellar there, you if can you go back listen and listen to, to, us, to is episode it, three. Is it episode three? Episode three. 
wow, we're really early on in the uh, laugh podcast uh, canon. Well, after we saw Interstellar, I said, Ian, you're like, oh, I hate that. I was like, but you're going to love The Martian. <laughs> Just All right. wait one year from now. All right. So going back to Interstellar, there is a... If you go back to Laugh 5, where we discuss what we enjoy in movies or what we like in movies, mm-hmm. one of the things that appeals to me is the examination of evil and evil in the human heart or how that duality of uh, evil being in a good person or otherwise like being the antithesis of humanity is played out thematically in movies is, is what always interests me. That doesn't happen in The Martian, but it does happen in Interstellar. And there are some things in Interstellar that I find superior to The Martian because The Martian is just a little too treacly for me. <laughs> it's a little too, it's a little too feel good. And I understand you can't have, I mean, if you did have any sort of a villain character, there are some characters that could fit that mold. The NASA, uh, I guess Teddy Sanders played by, not Jeff Bridges, who's the older old guy? Uh, Teddy Sanders, the, the, the main uh, NASA the leader of NASA that takes all the Jeff heat. Daniels, Jeff Daniels. I was thinking Jeff Bridges. <laughs> yeah. The other Jeff, he could have been a stereotypical stand in the way, uh, pragmatist, but, and then that would have been, it would have been too cartoony in order for it to work, I think. And then in that sense, it wouldn't have worked, but interstellar does have that touch of evil. So in that sense, I kind of enjoy, I can, I can find myself going back to interstellar, on a personal level more than this movie. I, I get your point, but I, I would counter and I would say, we're not dealing with normal people. We're dealing with astronauts. We're dealing with some of the best of the best. Right. NASA, um, the NASA's mouthpieces aren't necessarily astronauts. Yeah, but uh, I, I would say of any government agency, I would think NASA's probably pretty top tier and they've got some really good people, hopefully mm, at the top. Yeah, that's what they think too. <laughs> Um, Chris Hatfield, who's a Canadian astronaut, he's got a bunch of YouTube videos that he filmed when he was up in space. He's, he's an amazing guy. He had, he has this quote about astronauts. There are no wishy-washy astronauts. You don't go up there by being uncaring and blasé and whatever gave you that sense of tenacity and purpose to get that far in life is absolutely reaffirmed and deepened by the experience itself. I do think astronauts are a cut above and I've talked about this before on the show. I mean, they really are the best of the best. They are cool and level-handed, level-headed. They, they will work through problems. They don't give up. I mean, it's just, they're a different Well, you'd have to have a different mindset. Folk. Yeah. In order to be able to look at, look down the barrel of, uh, what does he think, four years mm-hmm. before a rescue mission can, can be garnered together or gathered together in order to come to Mars or Mars to get him. I I don't need that. I don't know that you really need a villain for these people. The villain, if anything is Mars and Mars is constantly trying to kill Matt Damon. It's, it's not though. It's not, not, not in this movie. Uh, There's, there are some scenes. It's not menacing enough. And, and I'm not worried about uh, evil is completely. I mean, sorry, nature is completely objective. Mm Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a choice to be anything other than what it is. Human beings have a choice. And that that's that's the sort of evil that I'm talking about. Like I don't think a hurricane is evil necessarily. Although my my puppy does. I tell you she was we had a flood here recently, uh well, close to a coastal flood that got into the backyard. Bam bam went into the backyard and barked at it. Yeah. She's very yeah, I mean, intimidated but, by it. But this isn't man versus man as a theme to it. This is man versus nature or man versus problem. Oh, I, I think this is nature. I mean, this is large scale and, you know, to get back to that whole idea of exploration, this is a film where, I mean, you can go and explore and be on your own for large chunks of time. You can't even do that on earth. Now you're, yeah. you're no more than probably two days from civilization anywhere in the world now. I, yeah. I understand what you're saying. There are some people, though, that would argue that we're wasting resources going to space when we could be doing it going uh, underneath the oceans. Uh, that that those are that that is the undiscovered country, and that's we fun. <laughs> I like the abyss too. Yeah, and ju- I, you, you mentioned that earlier in the show where you said that we're it's the only undiscovered region that we have, but we do have the. Uh, I mean, there are people that say we should be putting our resources towards stuff that that seems realistic 
like that was a problem a lot that I had with Interstellar was you're only saving a few people in Iowa, right? And <laughs> yeah. that's the human race. So I, I think I am responding somewhere to this being a story about the future, and it's not a dystopia. That that is right. so refreshing. Tomorrowland. Yeah, I didn't hate Tomorrowland. <laughs> there were parts of it. Tomorrowland did not work, but that's a different. But movie. you could also argue that there is a dystopia in that, right? Uh, okay. But the whole idea, I, just I'll what let you man can do and can overcome. I, I like Apollo thirteen. If you know, to me, if you like Apollo thirteen, this is the continuation of that. Okay, I did like Apollo thirteen, and I like this movie too. Um, what do you think, Christopher Nolan thinks of this film? Yeah. Oh, I think he's a little pissed. Do you think so? Do you think he's angry? I mean, you know what he would say politically, but the, for this movie to be what I think he thought Interstellar was going to be, yeah. this movie actually it it does the things that he wanted Interstellar to do in oh. terms of encouraging people towards yeah. space. Or I mean, and I'm sure you know we're going to we can nitpick on this here in a little bit, but I was saying going into this film, I loved watching it. My wife loved it. It, it held up. I think the movie's going to hold up down the line. I think it swings for the fences, and for the most part, it clears it. You know, it doesn't bite off too much. No, I, I agree. I mean, this might be the movie that we have, that we're closest on in terms of our level of appreciation for. Yeah, it's rare for us, I, f- I feel, to be this positive. And I just, I'm excited. It makes me excited for Prometheus 2 that maybe Ridley Scott still has it. This is not Fury Road, though. I mean, both of us put Fury Road above a 95%. I wouldn't say, I'm I'm hedging a little bit on this movie. I don't don't think it's as good as Fury Road. Mad Max Fury Road, that is. This movie definitely makes my top 10 at the end of the year. Probably it'll be in my top 5. It'll be interesting for me to see where it winds up. If it winds up in my top 10. I'm also interested when we get other guests on this show to see what they thought of this film. I mean, it's no Kamika the Treasure Hunter. So, (laughs) If you're talking about uh, science fiction, I think Ex Machina might probably finish a little bit higher for me. On All right. Wait, you've said of the three science fiction movies we've done in the last year, the big ones, Interstellar, Ex Machina, this film, you have The Martian in last place. That pains me. No, I probably not. I, no, actually, I do have Ex Machina ahead of it. I'm not sure where I stand on Interstellar. There are things I like about Interstellar. There are some things I really don't like about The Martian. For the most part, I think it's an A, but it's an A minus. <laughs> so, would you agree that this is a movie that if you're going to go see it, you should see it in theaters? Oh yeah. There's no reason to watch this or Gravity, or even Interstellar for that matter. Although of the three of them, Interstellar probably would fit best on the on the small screen. I mean, it's it's, it's more of a story. There's more uh, stuff going on with different characters and things. There's um in this movie, the visual, the way that they capture Mars visually, is best suited to the big screen. Uh, and then there are the the space sequences that are pretty important. That on the small screen, I wouldn't have felt that tension that I alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you're going to go see this, go see it in the theater. Probably if you can see it in 3D, uh, I would imagine that it would be a good experience also. Yeah, I didn't see it in 3D. I I also think there's something magical about the desert it was filmed in. It's the same desert that they filmed Lawrence of Arabia in, another film that I've gone on and on about. Right. You can listen to that on episode 36 of the Laugh Podcast. <laughs> They're all over the place on the Laugh Podcast stuff. They also did a lot of stuff on... Uh, uh, Sound stages in mm-hmm. Turkey. Yeah, um, this movie made fifty-five million its opening weekend. Do you think it holds up in its second weekend out? The only big new competition is Pan. I think it'll. I don't think it'll make fifty-five million, but it'll. It, it might be above thirty or thirty-five. I mean, it'll still. Ha- it might. It might win the box office. I don't think it'll make that much money. That's still strong if it only drops twenty or thirty percent. But I might be wrong. I could see this movie having some long legs because really the next big film that comes out I think is Spectre. Yeah, I guess. Beginning of November. I mean October's pretty wide open. I'm trying to think of what the movies are that you have going up against uh Star Wars. The uh, Juggernaut. I uh, know the Danish girl was one of them. <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, I have The Martian. That's this one. So you're already ahead, 55 million. Yeah. Of course, um, you'll only be ahead up until. <laughs> yeah, up until. Yeah. Uh, the movie uh, Hunger Games and The Good Dinosaur. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, I'd feel better. I don't know what you could really... Oh, yeah, you also there. have Danish Girl. Sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. So, anyway. I think Star Wars is going to be a juggernaut. Good. <laughs> I mean, I've heard there are some theaters that are prepared to show it on 10 screens. You go to a multiplex that has 20 screens, 10 of them are showing Star Wars. Was Martian not the highest screen count of the year so far? Uh, Wasn't it 3,600 screens? I had 37, but I would bet um, Avengers was more than that. Okay. But, it's I mean, possible. It's still, it was still up release. there. I know that it was playing in a ton of movies, and like our movie theater had it in two screens, and we have a small little movie theater. And um, they didn't have Sicario. It's hurt a little bit by its runtime of two and a half hours. where You can't have multiple screenings. Yeah, I think it just got beat out by Gravity for the October record. Gravity was only a 90-minute movie. You can get in a lot more showings over the course of a weekend. Wasn't gravity hindered by a snowstorm or something? I don't know. Yeah, I think that this there there was they were making some connection between that and the flood uh, or the uh, our hurricane that we may have had. You came to me with a sad puppy dog face, asking if acts of God <laughs> would have anything to do with the challenge. Because we have this hurricane and nobody will be able to go to the movies this weekend. The entire wrong. East Coast is going to be swamped, by it. so this shouldn't count. Maybe I get it. <laughs> And I said, uh, no, too no, bad. No moss. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. We got that from, uh, that notice from, uh, listener Tony C, right? Didn't he send in the thing on, uh, Facebook about, uh, the filming location? Mm-hmm. Yep. He posted, uh, you can send stuff into the left podcast, um, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the left podcast stuff pops up there. Follow us on Twitter. Yeah. The, the left podcast. podcast. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's go into some spoilers, man. Because I need to. I need to like, vent. Yeah, I think I need all to, this positivity <laughs> ends. Right. I need to temper your enthusiasm, there, buddy. Good luck. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. All right. I think they're completely superfluous characters in the movie. They have no real bearing on not that they don't have any bearing on the plot. They obviously have a bearing on the plot, but they're, uh, they're just in there as functionaries and the function that they serve is annoying to me. I'm speaking specifically of Donald Glover's character. Donald Glover plays a, uh, I'm not even sure if he's a NASA engineer or not. It's a sub level NASA scientist who, uh, Rich Parnell, NASA astronomer who, this is the point that annoyed me most of all. He figures out a way to save Watney. Yeah. But he doesn't tell anybody right away. And the, and his, his boss says, hey, man, he says, uh, we need you to run these numbers on this figure. And he goes, well, that's not going to work unless, and there's this long pregnant pause. And the boss is like, what, what? He's like, unless... Huh. And then he just turns away and he runs off and then he does his own calculations on his own in some, you know, closet somewhere, taps into the supercomputers of NASA and does all of his calculations and figures out, uh, the way to save, mm-hmm. uh, Watney is basically to s- steal a subplot from a Star Trek movie. You use the gravity of the earth to go around. The- <laughs> Yes, you, 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 yeah, you, yeah, no, you're yes. correct. That's the way it's presented in the movie. They don't talk about the engine. It's not your standard rocket fuel engine. It's an ion engine. All right, wait a minute now. We can talk all about the stuff that's in the book if you want to. I'm just talking about the movie, though, I, I, and this, the problem I have with the movie. No, and I, I wish that they had spent some time talking about the engine and why that math is so much more difficult. Basically, an ion engine creates a little bit of acceleration over a long period of time. So you're constantly accelerating. So it's very hard to figure out distance in a three-dimensional space where you're also curving under gravitational fields. That's why he needs the supercomputers to do all of this. I don't mind the supercomputer. The main thing that I hated about his character. But but it it doesn't show how brilliant you have to be to figure out this type of math. And that it would actually take a long time and, that's why NASA didn't come up with this idea, like to figure out this route. They did it in Star Trek Four or no, Star no, Trek they, Five. They discovered country out slinging around Earth. Yeah, yeah, but that slingshot. That's, that's not the impressive part of the math. Wasn't the thing impressive about? I like Donald Glover as an actor. He's fine. 
I'm not saying anything about Donald Glover as an actor. I'm just saying that the role was ridiculous and superfluous and uh, just a little bit annoying. It was like a hair on a plate. Like they, they bring out the food. You start eating half of the, the, the meal. It's a good meal. You paid a lot of money for it. You're really enjoying it. And then you see a little hair. Okay. What about though? He comes into that boardroom meeting and he explains his idea using a stapler very complex science. He explains it in, what, a minute, 90 seconds? And then Jeff Daniels, you had to love this. He says, goodbye. Right. And he's gone from the film. But you're explaining really complicated science stuff very quickly. It's like Apollo 13 when they have all of those items dropped on the table and they say, here, we have to get this square hole into a round hole. Right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. And they, these are the things that we have. But, I mean, to condense stuff, not bore your audience, right. I think they do a really good job later on with the okay. Donald Lover character. Maybe. It's a defense. It doesn't work for me because he sticks out so badly as a character. Plus the whole sort of Hollywood trope of having the special secret and then running off and doing it all on your own. You know, I got this. That's it's funny. my ball. I'm going to run away with it. I also thought it was funny. I'm a big fan of Community, though. And Donald Lover's great on there. And he plays an idiot. Okay. So now when he's playing a real smart guy and... The characterization's not that different. Right. It's kind of fun to watch. Okay. Huh. Flip sides of the same coin. So he's typecast as well, too. I don't know. I don't, I don't watch Community. But I didn't like Donald Glover's character of Rich Parnell. Right. I felt also that uh, there were three characters that p- did basically the same thing. Uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor as Vincent Kapoor. Sean Bean as Mitch Henderson. And uh, Kristen Wiig as... Uh, I'm not sure what her name she, was. She's the PR person. Yeah, the PR na- the PR person, Kristen Wiig, they're all basically mouthpieces for, uh, her name is Annie Montrose, NASA's spokesperson. They're all basically mouthpieces for NASA in, in different guises, and then they pop up here and there in different, uh, you know, I guess they, they're playing, uh, I, there, are, there are different functions for them. But they could have all been one person. It just seems like here we want to put these extra people in there so that we can look more like the United Nations. Let's have this German guy. Let's have this Scottish guy. Let's have this, you know, African American guy. Oh, actually, I think he's Indian. He's part Indian, part black. It's just the diversity for the sake of diversity. Just it seems pandering to me. And I thought that that's that's what this felt at a couple of times. Possibly. Um, yeah. I think they all serve different roles in NASA. Again, the film doesn't fully explain those differences. Jeff Daniels is the head of NASA. Kristen Wiig is the head PR person. Chiwetel Ejiofor is the mission director for all of the missions to Mars. Sean Bean is just for this mission. Which, I mean, that is the actual structure. I I, I get hierarchy. If this was a military movie, we'd be fine understanding general, colonel, major, captain. I don't know if we'd be fine given that they're not clearly defined roles. Like you say that Kristen Wiig is a PR person. I don't know if she ever gives a speech in front of ca- the camera without either Chiwetel Ejiofor or Terry Sanders, uh, the Jeff Bridges role. Jeff Bridges? Is it Jeff Daniels? Jeff, Dan- Jeff Daniels. Yeah. <laughs> without them speaking first, and then she maybe adds something else later. Yeah. I think she's just kind of there to stand around in the pantsuit and, and look a little bit annoyed and, peeved at certain things. Well, she has a couple of comments like <laughs> nerds. Yeah. Yeah. And well, that's true. Her character. Yeah. I, I wish she had a bigger role in the film. Uh, her character in the novel has a bigger role, but I thought she was great. And I mean, you have to make cuts somewhere and you, you do you want to show every single little press conference or do you want to just show the major moments? Um, for example, they barely talked about what went wrong in that first rescue mission where they tried to send up the food to Mark Watney. And explaining why that failed. That right, was they, really, really quick. Right. They, a lot of it's really quick. This is my um, statement earlier where I said they want to have their, their they want to appeal to both audiences, like the super hyper, really smart people, like the NASA audiences that they screen for uh, before the movie was released. And then also the common moviegoers. So they'll use uh, print on the screen to describe certain characters, but sometimes they don't do that. There was one guy who played a pretty significant role. They didn't explain who he was. He looked like Rick Ocasek from the cars. And he's, I think he's, uh, Mindy's boss. Oh, he, he's Mindy in Park. In that big room with all the screens. Yeah. 
he's standing around. He's you know, he, he's like just I said, monitoring. Yeah, well, he's still sort of important. Like every other character gets the little scroll across the bottom of the screen. He's playing it there. I'm like waiting for the scroll, and I'm like, ah, oh, maybe he's not important. But he's got speaking roles. Yeah, he's. I mean, he a comes headset. back three or four times. He's wearing a headset. He's <laughs> and he's like a voice of reason, sort of. Like, did they run out of a uh, budget for uh for graphics on the screen? No. With, uh, yeah. no so I, I don't agree. do it for every other character. They're not just this one character. That was annoying to me. I'm just telling you, these are nitpicky. Uh, no, I I, uh, I agree. But, it's a lot of characters, but I do think we're able to understand who these characters are and their relationships fairly well, or at least I did. If you tell me you couldn't and you know you didn't read the book, I'll right. acquiesce the point. There, there, I don't think it needs to be over-explained. Movies don't need to be over-explained. Sometimes that can be annoying too, but I think that just having characters on the screen for the sake of having characters on the screen can be equally annoying. Does this movie need another half an hour? Should the you know should there be a director's cut that fleshes out some of this stuff some more? I think it should be eight hours. It should be an eight hour TV show on the big screen, no, or release don't, it. Don't like, tease me. Release it like Titan One or Attack on Titan. Because there were a bunch more things that went wrong for Watney that I wish had made it into the film. Okay. And in, 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 in watching him, he had to overcome a lot of things on his own without the help of NASA. They, they spend a whole lot of time with those potatoes. Yeah. They, and that's in the first two months or whatever of the, of the journey. Mm-hmm. Then I think they flash on screen seven months later <laughs> or something. And they have him solving a problem working with NASA. Like they have their own space mover oh, yeah. lander thing and he blows and, and it's a real important thing for them to drill through the top of the only thing that he has. Why? They never explain what that bubble on top of the space lander was for. He needs more room. But what, what's get, going in there? He has the oxygenator. They don't show the him putting it in there. I know they skip a lot of the engineering. And but then, they have that scene where he's reconfiguring the the mover or whatever, and he blows it up, but then to no end. It's like, hello, what are you doing with this thing? It, I yeah, no, no, they they uh, they blow over a lot of this just um, Beverly Hill Billy's type rig he's created, yeah. where he's got all these solar panels hanging off. He hooks up the other rover so he has extra room yeah, yeah. to fit all the stuff that he needs. Because he literally has to bring everything from the hab so that he can survive. Because his journey to the escape spot is like 70 days. And, right, I know, thought it was even longer than that. So he had to bring his... Maybe it's closer to 100. But I mean, it is a significant chunk of time. In the movie, it's like, yeah, I'm here. Oh, look. I'm already at my destination. Right. It doesn't seem to be this real struggle. That's the problem that the movie had overall was dealing with the time issues and the time lapse issues. The way they cut the final scene was a problem for me. Also, just because they made a point of mentioning that there's a 29 minute lag between mm-hmm. these events, but they happen in real time the way they cut the movie. Yeah. They keep cutting back to NASA and the people there for their reaction. And I can think of a half dozen other ways that you could cut it so that you don't have to use that and you can still develop the tension that you need. Uh, you don't have to have the reaction shot in the control room, the Houston, we have a problem shot, uh, in order for it to work unless it's pandering. And that's what I felt when I saw it. I was like, uh, and also this gets to my, maybe not my final point, but this is a pretty big point. You talked about the theater that we watched in here in Hayes. (laughs) Yeah. My, the very first scene when they're talking about the windstorm, the up, the upcoming windstorm, something else I want to talk about in a minute. There was a couple behind me from either the Philippines or some uh, China, maybe. So they were speaking in Mandarin or Tagalog or something behind me the whole time. I had to move. It was constant. It was like she was trying to explain what was going on on the screen. It was like a deaf person. She was not a deaf person, a blind person. She was explaining in Mandarin Chinese, what was going on on the screen to a blind person. I was like, I was, I mean, I haven't got anything against blind people. I do have something against people that talk through movies. So I had to move. I had to get up and move. And the last scene that we were just talking about where, uh, the rescue scene where he's, uh, where he launches without a, you know, in a convertible or whatever. 
a whole cr- group of people came into the theater, walked all the way. I had to move to the back row, practically. They moved. I was the second for the back. They moved all the way up to the back, and they took up that entire back row right behind me, right <laughs> in the middle of the movie, in the middle of the key scene at the end of the movie. And then they were sitting there, and they were talking the whole time, just talking. Just, uh, ba-da, 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 ba-da. And then an usher comes in about two and a half seconds later, follows them back up there, and tells them they're in the wrong theater. So now they have to all get up and walk out. All ten of them just walked out, but yeah, in the middle of the seat. So it was completely taken out of the movie uh, at that point. Well, that that was annoying. Me. Yeah, that does suck for me. Well, towards the end of the movie, it was funny watching all the old people get up and have to go use the bathroom. <sighs> that would have been the me. movie was a little too long. Um. All right. So getting back to the windstorm thing. Yeah. This movie tries to have its cake and eat it too in terms of uh, the volatility of the surface atmosphere, the atmospheric conditions that lead to their escape. He never has to deal with again in any shape or form. So maybe it's a once in a lifetime uh, storm, but later on he's holding back all the wind with a tarp. Yes. You you are right that, Mars would not be able to produce that type of wind. That that's the major plot hole you that, just pointed out. It's, it's, there wouldn't be a windstorm that would cause them to have to evacuate in that manner. Um, I didn't mind suspending my disbelief on that. I didn't even know that that was the case. Yeah, I didn't know until afterwards that the atmosphere is that much different than yeah. winds can never get above what forty miles an hour they, or something. Yeah, but they would still have to leave, not because they'd be at risk of the hab or the rocket ship being knocked over. It would be the fact that there's so much dust in the air, you wouldn't be able to recharge your solar cells. And early in the movie, they also say he'll be buried within a a year anyway. Mm -hmm. But he's not. He never gets buried. There's never another mention of a sandstorm or a snow or drifting snow. Not snow, but once, like cleaning off the solar cells. In actuality, you'd be cleaning off the solar cells pretty much every day. Well, not only that, you'd have to you'd have to shovel back the hab, I guess. That was the other problem I had, the geography of the whole situation. E- even in the initial scene, which may have been distracted by the, the tag-along going on behind me, I couldn't understand why Michael Pena is hanging out by the um, rocket ship, ready to launch, when there's still weeks to go in that mission. He's just doing checks on the system, making sure everything's all I right. I thought he was there like a getaway driver. Yeah, no. I, I mean, that's the way the movie sort of presented it. That uh, he's hanging out there waiting for him in case anything goes wrong. They're going to run over to this ship, and then all of a sudden, this storm comes out of nowhere. They had no way of predicting this this storm. Hell, we knew that that hurricane was coming on in on f- like what f- Wednesday? Yeah, no. <laughs> it was supposed to hit on Monday. I, I agree. It's a little bit of a cheat, but it, that. I was always told when you're writing a story, it's okay to have a cheat and to have weird circumstances get your character into trouble. You're not allowed to cheat to get them out of trouble. And that's one of the things I did like in this movie. They come up with very plausible scientific solutions to get the characters out of trouble. The worst possible luck always befalls these characters to get them into problems, though. I was thinking more along the lines of what was going on with the geography of the the layout and everything. Like I didn't, I didn't know. I was very disoriented about where they were when they were deciding that they were going to get in the ship and leave. Okay, my wife had the same thing. She thought they were leaving the ship to walk around so Matt Damon gets killed. Right. It wasn't clear that they were in that they were in that there was even a habitat there for them to be in. They didn't set that up. And they could have done it, I think, easier. Okay. And then later on, when he's building the uh, the farm, <laughs> the potato farm, it, I didn't realize that that was the center of the hab. That was basically the entire habitation. Um, yeah, he, he uses place pretty much had. every square inch to grow his potatoes. That wasn't clear, and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily my fault that it wasn't clear because he kept leaving it and going to a different location, going back and forth. Yeah, I really didn't know where this thing was and, and how important. And because that, I tell you fair. what, they also did it. Uh, they they made him seem surprised to to see the either the water or or a sprout or something like that. When in reality, he was there the whole time. He could have watched this thing grow. Like he probably wasn't outside of that habitat or hab or whatever for long periods of time at all, unless it was to do something. <laughs> So why would you go out of there? That's like your safety 
That's that's where you're most likely to remain. Also, how does I he have agree. unlimited oxygen? They're able to scrub the oxygen and get back. He also From has the... large amounts of um, liquid oxygen. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it's only one guy breathing. Plus, the plants help produce oxygen. All right, I wasn't. Re- they weren't really clear on that. In, in the book, there's a ton yeah, of math explaining book, all book, that book. stuff. Come on. It's I'm trying fair. to get you to read the book, but I don't know if I want to read that. It's too much math. What I like is this too is mathy. a story for engineers and kids that like math and science. Not an engineer. But th- this is a movie like I could see kids later on saying this is the movie that got me interested in science. That's or, you know, what you said about the Interstellar. I, I I agree, but I think it can happen again. When are we going to have the astronaut genre? Last week we talked about Black Mass and that you know it's the gangster film genre. Why don't we have the genre of astronauts and explorers? How many movies do you need to have a genre? I, I don't know. The astronaut explorer genre. But these are wonderful people who go on amazing adventures. Astronaut farmer. Right? Oh, astronaut farmer's good. Okay. Have you seen it? No. Billy Bob. Oh, it's wonderful. All right. I don't. Magical. I'm not even. discounting that. It was. Just, <laughs> uh, it fits in your, into your genre, though. Your genre theory. I'm trying to think if there's an astronaut movie I don't like. Mission to Mars, check. Sunshine? Uh, Love some sunshine. Right. So there you go. There you go. Bowl-like space. I think you need to have at least a dozen. If you can come up with a dozen astronaut explorer movies, then... (laughs) Challenge accepted. All right. I know there's one movie I like, The Reluctant Astronaut with Don Knotts. (laughs) It's a great one. In fact, when we were looking for... uh, Looking at Interstellar, I was going to look at that movie. Maybe it's on, uh, maybe it's on the Netflix mm-hmm. or the uh, Amazon Prime. And if it is, I'll recommend it next week on our our <laughs> next We Laugh, which would be We Laugh eighty five, eighty six, eighty six. Good lord! What are we going to talk about for our next uh, show after the We Laugh eighty uh, five? I'm hoping to watch Knock Knock on demand. Seven. Wait this a minute. Weekend. What's going on? Okay, because. Um, if we do knock knock and the final girls on demand, then we can have like a double feature show. It'd be pretty yeah. interesting. Uh, Mississippi grinds out there. Yeah, you need to catch up with that. I, I've watched it. I won't say anything to spoil it, but uh, I think there are a couple movies we could review next week. All right, possibly. So, looking forward to it. Looking forward to sharing with you, Mister uh, Two Frames. I don't have a quote for today's show. You don't? No. Do you? I was thinking about getting one from uh, Interstellar. Oh, I've got a quote from Brian Cox, the British physicist. Okay. The Martian is the best advert for a career in engineering I've ever seen. All right. That's a great quote. So if you want to drive a train, make sure you go see The Martian. (laughs) Uh, For Mr. Two Frames over there on the L-Train, box at Bodum, everybody. There be dragons. Dragons.